Business is a lot like a game of Monopoly. Well, okay, it is and it isn't. Life, after all, isn't a board game. But there are a lot of parallels. There are properties and companies available for sale. Sometimes you have the money, sometimes you don't. Unlike Monopoly, though, in real life, you don't get a look to rich uncle money bags for cash and get out of jail free cards. In reality, when it comes to business, you get a lot of help from banks, the government, and brokers. The Small Business Administration is an arm of the U.S. government, and they put together something which is very unique to the world, something that I'm unaware anybody else has. And it's basically an opportunity for banks to have coverage as long as they follow certain rules of the U.S. government when they loan money to businesses. And we believe that this is one of the reasons why America has done such a great job in the small business world. I'm your host, Randall Sylvie, and this is the Deal Closers Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about SBA loans. We covered it briefly in our funding episode, but today we're going to take a closer look. SBA loans weren't always around. Buyers used to have to search for other ways to fund these major deals. Jason and Ron from WebsiteClosers.com explain it very well. Yeah, I'd like to kind of talk about where the process originated. Originally, the reason they started the SBA is because sellers would get ready to retire. They would own a business. They would employ people. And there would be no mechanism at the end for them to turn their business over in an organized fashion to another person meaning that they either shut the business down and laid the people off, or they would hand it to somebody and get a very small down payment and then rely on payments over a long period of time. So it didn't create any retirement mechanism or anything for a seller. So the SBA basically jumped in and created an entity that really is pretty interesting because the way it works is that when a buyer takes out a loan, 25 to 3% of that loan is actually loaned from the bank as an additional amount into the deal and turned over to the SBA. The SBA then runs a pool. And in that pool, anytime there's a default, they actually pay it out of that pool. And so that's what gives banks the incentive to want to lend is that they have, usually it's 75% of the loan that the government is guaranteeing. If there's a recession, that amount might even go to 90%. And so the bank doesn't have a lot of downside. It doesn't take them long between fees and interest to recoup the original amount that they have at risk. And so they really don't have a big downside on these loans. And that's what makes them aggressive in wanting to lend. We operate around the world and we know that the vast majority of buyers are here. The vast majority of small business action happens in the United States. And a lot of it's just because there's a lack of funding anywhere else. But here in the United States, the Small Business Administration has what's called preferred lenders. They will do an SBA loan outside of the preferred lending network, but we only work with preferred lenders. And these are people that you know have to go through a rigorous case analysis. Their loan portfolio has to be pretty solid. These are people that can do SBA loans on their own without having to go to the SBA for approval outside of certain circumstances. And so we work with a lot of folks that lend in our particular space. They are capped at $5 million, but we can do loans as large as six, even $7 million sometimes, as long as the actual loan value doesn't exceed 5 million. We can do loans, you know, pretty small, all the way down to $100,000 through the SBA and all the way up to 5 million. The Small Business Administration has what's called an SOP, Standard Operating Procedures for these loans. 
And so there are very specific rules that have to be followed for all of them. We know all of these rules, having done hundreds of millions of dollars of these loans. And so we push a lot of our buyers and sellers to that process because it's very attractive given that a buyer really only has to put down about 10%, sometimes a little bit more, but usually about 10% of the entire deal in cash at the closing table. About 75% of the deal is funded by the bank, which is, of course, backed by the government. And another roughly 10 to 15% comes in the form of a seller note buy in between the buyer and the seller and is a personally guaranteed promissory note. Jason outlined some of the process rules for us. In a way, it's kind of like Monopoly. You have to play by the rules. And when you don't, banks are less likely to do business with you. First of all, outside of most other lenders, these lenders are required to use tax returns. So in the mergers and acquisitions world, especially when you get into larger deals, usually tax returns are not sort of the quintessential documents that are used. But with the SBA process, they're everything. SBA requires the lenders to actually use those documents only for purposes of what's called a debt service analysis. And what that means is that, you know, they're going to take a look at the buyer. They're going to take a look at the historical cash flows of the company based on what was reported to the government. And they're going to determine whether or not this buyer is going to be successful based on ratios they have in place that are approved both within their own bank as well as, again, the SOP at Small Business Administration. And if you want to read that SOP or get more information on it, the SBA has its own website, sba.gov. These loans are called 7A loans. So when you go in and you start looking at the different kinds of loans they have, the 7A loans are 10-year loans. And so that means that you have 10 years to pay them off. The interest rates are pretty favorable as it relates to the business world. We see them anywhere between 6 and 8%. And that's extremely attractive, especially given that most of these loans in the tech world are all based on cash flow and not hard assets. That could be a whole podcast by itself as to the differences of the two. But, you know, in general, these banks are lending based on the historical cash flow of the company and not some assets that are on the books and on the balance sheet as collateral. They're only willing to do that, again, because the government has said, hey, we will back you should there be a default on that loan. Here's the thing about rules. Sometimes, if there are a lot of them, it can scare people away. It can seem as if the entire process is extremely complicated, and in some ways, it is. We're dealing with large sums of money. There should be systems in place to make sure it's done correctly. But with so many rules, this process too often gets a bad name. The default rate on SBA loans is really low. I believe in the just the pure amount of businesses that fail at 7%. I believe the dollar amount is three. A lot of the failure rates are coming from startup franchises. There's some other groups that are not very successful as well. That include cafes and bars and that sort of thing. SBA loans have a bad reputation among brokers. When I first started brokering, Jason and I joined this group called the uh, Business Brokers of Florida, and I had to go to training for three days. And one of the things that they taught, they had a section on SBA. And when the trainer began to teach this, he says, okay, today we're going to talk about the SBA. And he looks around the room, pauses for dramatic effect and says, okay, we talked about it. You're not going to do it. And then he moved on. And I was really shocked because if it wasn't for the SBA, we wouldn't sell even a fraction of the amount of businesses that we sell. The reason that a lot of brokers don't like to do SBA loans is because the majority of them are declined. 
Now, as a brokerage that has done hundreds of these deals, we know every inch of what they need. We know what the tax returns need to look like. If we're at the end of the year with a client, we will tell him not to cheat on his taxes, like you know, a whole lot of people in America do, or certainly should we say take liberty rather than cheat. We teach them you know, what legitimate addbacks are that the bank will allow and other ones that they will not. That's the first thing is if you don't have a good tax return, you're not gonna get approved by the bank. The second thing is they want uh, business plans and they want two-year projections, they want resumes. And you know, if you let a buyer run the process, he really is just totally unfamiliar with it. Like take, for example, a business plan. If you send a 50-page business plan, that actually is not gonna get a lot of attention. As a matter of fact, the underwriter would be pretty annoyed at looking at something like that because they don't have time to read 50 pages. If you send a one pager, you're automatically declined. And so there's a gentle blend of, you know, maybe four or five, six pages. And, you know, you want graphics, you want, you want it easy to read, you want it to the point, and you want it to be well understood. You take the resume and you bury it into the process. If it's crafted properly, right away, the bank looks favorably upon the buyer. Now, also, you know, you have to dig in a little bit on your buyer. In our sector, we don't usually have these problems too much as, say, a bricks and mortar sector. But, you know, you have to have good credit. You have to have a resume that shows that you're not necessarily experienced in the industry, but that you have life experience that would accommodate the new company that you're about to take on. There's going to be a Q&A. And even smart people sometimes are asked questions that they're not ready for. So, you know, maybe during the Q&A with an underwriter, they may stumble over what the underwriter considered to be, you know, questions that were important, at least to them, and they may decline the loan. And so we kind of educate the buyer from A to Z on exactly what to expect. So we have our rules and good things to know about SBA loans, but there's more. There are things banks don't necessarily spell out for you, the unwritten rule. These are the kinds of things Jason and Ron have picked up on over the years. These tips, in addition to the SBA process rules, help lead to successful SBA loan approvals. Here's other examples of why deals will fail. If you have collateral, the bank is required to take it. That means if you have more than 20% equity in your home, then the bank is going to put a lien on it. Now, if a broker is not educating a buyer up front on the rules, oftentimes you get into the fifth, sixth, seventh week and a term sheet comes back from the bank saying, okay, you're approved. And suddenly they see this, well, we're going to lien your house. And maybe the husband's borrowing the money, a wife is in the background and she's saying, what? You mean the bank now has a lien on our house? We can't move, we can't do anything. They own our house in essence for the next 10 years. And so they decide to decline the deal. Now, if they're properly educated, that would have been a discussion they would have had up front. They would have never entered into the deal or they would have reconciled themselves to the fact that this was coming and that they were ready for it. And so SBA loans may have a high decline rate and they may be much maligned, but the truth is they're actually, they're a really super efficient process. And in a government where we all know that, you know, try going down to the DMV or pretty much any government institution and you know, nobody is going to say it's the government at its finest. But I will say that the SBA is actually an entity that was created that actually works. Yeah, I was just going to add something that you made me think about there. The buyers and the sellers, as they're thinking about going down the road of the SBA, which roughly 90% of all transactions below $5 million go the SBA route because it's so attractive to both the buyer and the seller. 
as we've mentioned on other episodes, from the buyer's perspective, they're getting to amortize this over an entire decade, which makes it you know a lot more likely they're going to be successful paying that debt service. And from the seller side, it's really attractive because they're getting 85 to 90% of the entire deal in cash at the closing table. And that's a little bit rare in M&A, especially as you get to larger deals. You don't usually get that much of a deal at closing. It's really important also to understand back when we're talking about these tax returns, again, they're the most important document in the process. And a lot of times, like what Ron said, you know, folks will run their tax returns in a way that they want to be as tax efficient as possible. But that's not the smartest way to put a tax return in front of a bank if you're trying to sell your company. So owners are you know, forced to either pay more in taxes and have a resulting better taxable income, thus better deal, or save on taxes and have lower income, which will be a smaller loan for their particular deal. So just to break that down a little bit, you could have a company that's running on an accrual basis at, say, $200,000 in taxable income or earnings. But on a cash basis, it might only be $50,000 shown on the tax return. Well, if we put that in front of the bank, a four times multiple on that business is 200000 versus they would make $800,000 they're on an accrual basis. So they've lost, in that process, they've lost $600,000 that's because they saved the difference of the taxes that would have been on that additional $150,000. Let's call it, I don't know, 50,000. So they lost $600,000 to save 50. And that's kind of how the numbers work out. And so we have to go through this with people. And sometimes we want to adjust tax returns to adjust from cash to accrual and really think about the difference of the two. And again, this is only really important as it relates to going the SBA route, but the SBA is not allowed to add an ad back for the difference between cash and accrual. So they're really going to look at whatever the bottom taxable income is as the company's cash flow, even though we know on an accrual basis, your cash flow is going to be a much different number than on a cash basis. So that's something that we work with a lot of sellers on and it's better to come to us really early in the process so that we can start talking through it. We can look at when we're going to actually go to market and when a tax return will come out and think about what taxes we're going to pay and what tax rates we're going to be involved. Okay. Now, we talked a lot about SBA loans being favorable for deals under $5 million. Is that simply then because of the $5 million cap, upper limit cap on the loans? Yeah, the loan value can't go above $5 million, but we are able to do deals even at 6 and $7 million. It's just that the actual cash from the bank is only going to be $5 million. But if you've got a buyer that has, say, a $1 million that they put into it, then that gets you up to $6 million in cash, and then the other million could be you know, a mix of promissory notes, consulting agreements, or earnouts. But the bank is unable to loan above $5 million. Of course, there's other lending opportunities outside, and we do have some lenders that can do mezzanine lending, uh, which is junior debt up above the SBA process. And so if you have a, let's say you have an $8 million deal and you have an SBA loan for $5 million, you could go out there and get MES debt, which will be junior to, and obviously much more expensive than the SBA loan. Some of those lenders are out there providing those loans as well. And we have those relationships as well. Now, of course, a mezzanine loan, again, is going to be a higher interest rate. You're looking at 10 plus percent, probably closer to 15 percent on interest rates, and they're going to want their money back much sooner. It's not going to be a full 10 years. They're probably looking at three years. Maybe they'll do it in a balloon, but in any event, they're going to, it's going to be a much shorter term loan. I wanted to ask, in addition to all these rules, 
What are some things buyers wouldn't expect that are good to know? Who can you turn to to tell you the rules of the game? Their answer shouldn't come as a surprise. We return to the reason why brokers are so important. I think a buyer that has had no experience at all, first of all, needs to go and talk to a business broker. I would not talk to an accountant or a CPA or an attorney or a bank, especially not a bank, because if you walk in without any experience at all or any relationships at all into a bank, your disapproval rate is over 90%. You are highly unlikely to get approved for an SBA loan if you don't have those relationships. Why is that the case? I don't know, but that's just what we've seen. So going and talking to a broker up front, I mean, obviously there's no fees associated with that. It's going to be an educational process that costs you no money. And if you come and talk to us as an example, we're going to walk you through the whole process. And there's some things that buyers need to know that's really important. One, if you own a house or multiple houses, they're all going to be leaned against. As long as you have at least 20% of equity in a home, it gets leaned. And that's for all of the owners involved. So you could have somebody that's only going to put capital in at, say, 5% of the deal, and they have a house, and they may even be the only one that has equity in the house among the buyers in the group, and that house still gets leaned to the full extent of that loan. So they are all joint and severally liable for that loan. So anybody that's buying the company in that group and has over 20% equity, they all have to lean their homes, and that includes any secondary homes as well. The one thing they don't go after are retirement funds. So if you have 401ks and those kinds of things, those are not things that can be leaned. So that's a good thing. So it's good to know that part of it. The other thing you have to know is that you're going to be personally guaranteeing the loan. So it doesn't matter how the company does one way or the other, you're still personally liable to the bank for those funds. And so you have to understand that. And I think most people do when they come to us, but it's important to say it, you know, and also you're going to be personally liable to the seller on his junior debt, which is the promissory note we referred to earlier. That's going to be somewhere between 10 and 15% of the deal. So that's that part of it. If you're a buyer and you're wanting to buy a company, the one thing we tell people is because they come to us and they say, you know, what size of a company am I going to be good for? And we kind of go through their personal financial statement and we look at it. And for the most part, you don't want to get into a company unless you have two times the amount of cash available. In other words, if you've got $300,000 in your cash account, you don't want to invest more than $150,000. And if you're putting 10% down on a deal, that means that you're probably buying a company worth enterprise value, roughly 1.5 million. You don't want the other $150,000 in there because you want buffer. And we prefer to see a lot more buffer. And of course, so do the banks, but you certainly can't spend all of your money. There's got to be additional money available to you in case, you know, you go into a hardship or in case you need to provide a loan to the company for some reason to float because you're in a down period, whatever. But that's an important part. You're going to be asked to fill out a personal financial statement Obviously, you want to be very honest on that document because it is a bank document, which would be a federal offense should you not be honest on that document. You submit that to us, which will then be submitted to our partners so that we can start getting an idea. And we can actually pre-vet a buyer through the process before we even start looking at deals. And that's good for them because then they know, okay, I'm good for, say, $2 million and I can't look anything above that. I'm not going to be able to buy something above that. And that gives them a threshold and an understanding of you know, what they should be looking at. And then once we get into the process, it can be quite onerous. It's very similar to you know, the mortgage process with a bank. 
you know, all the documents that they ask for, all of your tax returns, all of your personal information. I mean, they're going to ask for all of those things and then some, your blood type and probably want to suck some blood too. But, you know, they're, they're going to take everything they possibly can information wise from you so that they make sure that you're going to be good for this loan. The other thing that's really important to understand from the buyer's perspective that is required by the SBA are certain insurance documents. As an example, you have to get life insurance. We have very particular people that understand the requirements of the SBA and the life insurance. And so, you know, we recommend those people be used. We have seen that derail deals because people go out and want to get, you know, life insurance through other brokers because they think they can save a penny and it kills a deal or delays it months. So important that, you know, you talk to people, get referrals from people that have been doing it for a long time that'll save you money in the long run in reality and uh, will stop the delay of deals. What else, Ron, as far as requirements for buyers? One of the things I, I kind of want to talk about was the process with the banker itself. Now, we as brokers often use the banks to vet our buyers. And as an example, you know, there's a saying, not that it's necessarily super true, but there's an element of truth to it, that buyers are liars. And so a lot of times you'll be told that somebody has a certain amount of money and in reality, they don't. The reality is what we do is oftentimes, as Jason was mentioning, we will send somebody to the bank to get pre-approved. Now, whereas you might be apt to lie to a broker, you're not going to be that likely to lie to the banker himself. Because once again, you start putting things in writing that are a lie, and that is a federal offense. And so we'll use that process to actually send the buyer over. And then the banker, we do a lot of business with these banks, and the bankers will give us the feedback we need to move forward. So oftentimes, you know, we may get feedback that, you know, this guy is really hot on buying this company, but I don't know if I can get him approved. Obviously, we're not going to rush into a deal. That's the difference between us and many other brokerages because a lot of brokers feel like a buyer comes in, I got to find a way to get this done. And they try to force a, you know, a round circle into a a square and it's not going to fit. It's not going to work. And so the process that we use, the banker in all these deals can be an asset or a liability. As a liability, they're trying to sell a product. They're commissioned. They have to churn paper and they don't stay employed unless they do. So they have to find good loans, submit them to the underwriter and get them approved and to the finish line. So a lot of times a banker will tell you everything you want to hear to try to get you to submit a loan to him, but he isn't sure if he can get that deal done or not. And so when you do a lot of business with the same person over and over and over, you know, they're going to be very honest with you on everything because the minute the deals start getting declined, you're going to go elsewhere. Now, another thing that is kind of interesting about the process of working with banks, which we have received an education on in the last year and a half, is that banks are very tightly scrutinized throughout this SBA process. And no matter how much they lend on an annual basis, they're only allowed to put a certain percentage of that lending into a sector. As we've grown as a company, we're doing into the nine figures now in these SBA loans. And we're actually shaping scenarios where if we give a bank 30 or $40 million in loans and they're only doing 300 or 400 million a year in SBA loans, they actually have to stop writing deals with us. And so we've learned the hard way, you know, through a couple of deals that we had in the works that were maybe five, six, seven weeks, you know, along and we thought they were getting approved. And then the next thing you know, we're being told that bank is not going to write the deal or any other for the time being. And so there's, there's a lot of moving parts on the banks that 
we, having done so many of these and having such a big position in the industry, now understand. Oh, I guess one thing I was curious about was uh, you mentioned that generally SBA loan is favorable for the buyers and the sellers. What does it look like from the seller side? What are kind of the pros to selling to a buyer who's funding with an SBA loan? Yeah. And again, there's a lot of confusion out there because there's a lot of bad business brokers out there that don't understand this process well, but it's actually quite an easy process if you know what you're doing. From a seller's perspective, it should be you know highly attractive because... Again, like mentioned before, you're going to get 85 to 90% of the entire enterprise value of the company in cash at closing. And for M&A, that's very high. Usually it's closer to you know, 50, 60% somewhere in there. And then the buyer's looking to hedge their bets a little bit through earnouts and rolled equity and promissory notes and those kinds of things. They're going to ask the seller to hold some, some debt or equity in the business. But with the SBA, you're exiting almost the entire deal on the closing date. That's pretty attractive. Also, I think it's interesting that, you know, from a seller's perspective, that, you know, the buyer is going to be vetted pretty early on through, you know, not only an appraisal, but also just from our process, as well as from the bank's process, where they're going through the personal financial statement, you know, the bank's going to know very quickly on whether or not that's somebody that can do the deal. And they're actually going to get a note from the bank saying, hey, yeah, we think we can do this deal. And that's a little bit different than the other types of M&A that we do maybe in the you know, 10 million plus range where the buyer may be getting a term sheet or those kinds of things, but you know, they still have to go through an entire process that could still result in no deal. So the approval process with banks results in a much higher deal close rate. So the SBA deals that we do, I mean, it's an over 90%, probably closer to 95% close rate on that first deal because, you know, we just know the SBA process so well and we know that everything's done sort of as a pre-vetting process. So, you know, once we explain that to a seller and we get them out of this mindset of what's going out there with some of the other business brokers that are, you know, talking about how bad this stuff can be. Like Ron mentioned earlier with the guy that said, you know, we don't do SBA deals. Well, that's ridiculous. To be really successful in this business, you have to do them, which means you have to understand them and you have to have the patience to get through them. But if you properly set expectations for both buyer and seller, you explain it well, and you know what you're doing, it's actually quite an easy process. And so we are big fans of the SBA. We love it. We think it's one of the reasons why, you know, America has done such great things in the small business arena. And, uh, you know, we push it on many people because, again, it just makes the process easier. Jason had one last nugget of wisdom about the entire SBA process. Something, it's safe to say, the Monopoly man wouldn't know anything about. Also, from a seller's perspective, you should consider this. If you're a buyer and you're a seller and you're negotiating a price, a buyer is going to be a little bit more flexible than they otherwise would since the vast majority of the deal is going to be a loan. So they might be willing to even go up you know, 10% higher than they otherwise would because they know it's going to be amortized over an entire decade. Versus without that, and they're coming out of their own pocket, they're going to be much, much tighter with that. So instead of coming up you know, with an additional $100,000, they may only have to come up with an additional $10,000. And then they'll, they'll agree to amortize that over the period. So that is also pretty attractive for sellers. And the multiples on these deals are still pretty good. You know, We're still getting four, even close to five times, even on SBA deals with you know, a million, around a million or less of EBITDA. So... You know, from a seller's perspective, it should look very attractive. Thanks to Ron and Jason for taking the time to talk to me. 
feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers.